Well, good morning. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church and happy Palm Sunday. Happy Palm Sunday. (laughs) Got a a couple of whoops. Um, So this Sunday, if you're not familiar with Palm Sunday or you hear it every now and then and it sounds like just kind of like a religious term that you hear about but you're not quite sure about, this is the traditional celebration of Christ's entry into Jerusalem um, where he was met by a large crowd of people that were waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, which meant Savior. They were saying our salvation has come. They were were calling him the son of David, which was a reference to the coming Messiah King who would deliver them from tyranny and oppression. That's who they were expecting. That's who they were yearning for. That's who they they were waiting for, longing for. And so the people of Israel were very much at this point under the thumb of oppression. There were countless prophecies about how this Messiah would deliver them, and and this crowd was eager to be delivered from tyranny and oppression, especially and specifically from the Romans who were oppressively occupying their land. And so I want you to understand the context of this holy week that's kicked off by Palm Sunday. So if you weren't aware, next week is Easter, (laughs) and so uh, which is when he was resurrected, right? And so. I want you to see, though, that that when these palm-waving crowds were doing what they were doing, they weren't just happy to see Jesus, right? This crowd was actually dancing on the line of insurrection as they're crying out to a new king while under Roman occupation. I want you to understand that. That's the context of Palm Sunday, and that's the context that kicks off the week of, that, that leads to Easter, that's what's happening in Jerusalem. So Jesus is entering a city, at the, this city, at the beginning of the festival of Passover, which was actually the celebration of how God delivered millions of Israelites from their captivity under Egyptian rule thousands of years before this. Okay? And so this is a festival that was primed with deeply political issues. And I would even say it was primed for a deeply political insurrection. Even the disciples were expecting the Messiah to come and overthrow the Roman government and then expose all the corrupt religious leadership that they would consider traitors. After all, that's exactly what the Messiah was prophesied in the Old Testament to do. And and that is true. That is what he was prophesied to do. However, that's not all he was prophesied to do. That was a half-truth, but not the full truth. Because that's just part of what uh, was prophesied, and that's just the part that they wanted. That's the part that these crowds were awaiting and expecting and crying out for. And that was their idea of how salvation would come and what salvation looked like. That was the kind of salvation they expected Jesus to bring right away. But they'd conveniently overlooked the multiple Old Testament prophecies about the suffering servant and about his death. There were prophecies and passages that we're going to talk about at our Good Friday service where we do celebrate that Good Friday where he did die the death we deserve to die. And we will celebrate that sacrifice. You're welcome to come Good Friday, this Friday, 6.30 right here. But what these people took from scripture sounded good to them but they left out the rest that they didn't really like or that didn't really jive with where they wanted things to go even though what seemed to be discouraging to them about the suffering servant was actually greater than they could have ever asked or imagined but Jesus is in fact the prophesied messiah And even the way that he entered Jerusalem by riding a donkey's colt was intentional in a confirmation that he is fulfilling the prophecies about the coming Messiah. That he is the Messiah. In fact, the way he entered Jerusalem, it says, riding on a a colt of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 prophesies this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Even specifically on a colt, 
the foal of a donkey. And that's exactly how Jesus entered Jerusalem. And they were all familiar with that passage. So for these crowds, this confirmed their hope that Jesus was indeed this long-awaited Savior and King. And so this miracle worker who had just recently raised a man from the dead is now here in their minds to crush the Romans and lead the insurrection and rebellion. Not only that, Jesus isn't bashful about the title that they're giving him. Like he rides in and receives every ounce of their praise and even the messianic titles that they're shouting over him. Even the palm branches are a symbol of majesty and grandeur and the triumph of good and royalty throughout the ancient world, especially in Israel. In fact, 1 Kings 6 talks about how all the, the walls around the temple were carved and engraved with figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and it's in the inner and the outer rooms of the temple. Revelation 7 even talks about the great multitude of, of Christians at the end of time. When we look, when, when in Revelation it presents the Christians of, of every tribe and nation and language, and they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb, who is Jesus, clothed. They're all clothed in white robes, and what do they have in their hands? Palm branches. They have palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, at one point, even the religious leaders look at Jesus, and they're like, teacher, rebuke them for the titles they were shouting over him. And then he responds, saying, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Woo! During Passover week, the historian Josephus tells us that Jerusalem's population swelled to about 2 million people. On average, at that point, it would have been about 25,000. That's a lot of people. Okay? And Matthew 21 tells us that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the entire city was stirred up. That's quite a stir. He's causing quite a stir. It would have seemed that Jesus was intentionally lighting the fuse to a powder keg of revolution. And in many ways, he definitely was, but not in the way that any of them expected. Jesus was in total provocation mode. Like he's walking up to the beast and he's smacking it in the face. That's what he's doing. And as we will see, that beast actually does indeed swallow him. And yet, he then destroys it from the inside out. We'll celebrate that. This is what we celebrate on Easter. But at this point, though, Jesus was forcing the crowds and the religious rulers and the political elite to deal with him. The time had come, and he was forcing them to deal with him. Right after he arrives in Jerusalem, one of the first things that he does is he rolls into the temple, and he turns over their tables. Like, he is definitely smacking this beast. He starts turning the tables over, and he's quoting scripture, saying, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, side note here. I don't want you to fall into the lie that Jesus is this, like, super different God than the one presented in the Old Testament. That's some nonsense. Inevitably, people who claim that aren't really reading their New or their Old Testament. Because if you do, you'll see that the God of the Old Testament is much more patient and compassionate and long-suffering and merciful than most people assume. And Jesus is much more judgmental, confrontational, and even angry at times than most people assume. Don't go by what you hear about Jesus and about God. Read your Bible. Read it for yourself, and it's going to become clear that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament in the flesh. Like, he's not some watered-down version of God. He's not some, like, hippie homecoming queen with a sash and a little, like, that's not the God of eternity in the flesh. That is not who Jesus Christ is. Yes, he is meek and mild, but he is not weak and mild. He comes to us in mercy to provide grace. God in the flesh, that's what's so powerful about the incarnation. 
He's not the watered-down version of God. He's the perfect image of the invisible God. So during this last week of his earthly ministry, though, Jesus is in full-throttle, unmitigated confrontation mode. And yet he's still loving, he's still gracious, he's still merciful. And everything he's doing is out of compassion for a very wayward and lost people. He entered Jerusalem as the king. And he's declaring to the crowds and the religious rulers and the Roman political elite, either crown me or crucify me, but you cannot ignore me. This is what Palm Sunday initiates and celebrates. So this morning, we're going to continue through the Gospel of John in our series called Sharing Life Like Christ. And in this series, we've been talking about the specific interactions that Jesus has with specific people throughout the book of John. And so we've seen his character on display and the questions that he asks and the patience that he demonstrates as he interacts with people. Like we've seen the things that he values and, and the, the way that he navigates their insecurities and their egos and their misdirections and, and, and the way that he draws them into grace and truth. And as we take in how he interacted with them then, we get to take in the way that he interacts with us now. Because the same way Jesus navigated their insecurities and their egos and their misdirections is the same way he now navigates your insecurities, your egos, and your misdirections today. Because we are not dealing with an ethereal idea of an impersonal God that lived a long time ago. We are interacting with the living God. Amen? Not the God of our imaginations, but the God of the Bible. This is how we understand who he is and what his character is like. And so we look at this in this entire series. We've been, we've been looking and experiencing the true Jesus for who he truly is and then sharing the life we experience in Christ with each other, our city, and beyond. But again, if you want to share life with others like Christ, you first have to share life in Christ. Like you can't be a conduit of this stuff to others if you haven't experienced it yourself. So we behold him for who he is, right? Because it's all about the overflow. It's all about beholding Jesus, experiencing Jesus, being loved by Jesus, and fully satisfied in Christ alone. And so today, though, our main focus isn't actually on Christ's entry into Jerusalem, but on how that entry set the stage for what I think is one of the most fascinating interactions in the entire Bible. And that is the interaction between Jesus Christ and Pontius Pilate. Remember the reason that those religious rulers were so panicked about people calling Jesus the son of David or the Messiah had more to do with their own need for power and control and the fear of what Pilate would do than anything else. They were petrified of this man. And yet... The insurrectionist temperature of the crowds was rising into a fever pitch, and it would have been aimed directly at the religious rulers and this Roman prefect or governor. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. It actually comes in the form of a question, and it was the question that Jesus was presenting to Pontius Pilate and everyone else in Jerusalem at that time and us as well today. It's the question, what will you do with Jesus, the man called Christ? What will you do with Jesus, the man called Christ? See, we, two, we all have two choices. You can either crucify him or crown him. But no matter how hard you try, you cannot dismiss him or wash your hands of him. So what will you do with the man called Christ? What will you do with Jesus, the man called Christ? See, every false religion on the planet is ultimately subjective. It's this subjective instructional on how to get to God. That's the, that, that essentially sums up all religion. Whether it's Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, or even a twisted form of Christianity that focuses on your own ability to be enough or get enough rather than rest and respond to what's been done for you in Christ. And yes, atheism is a religion. They're all, we are all made to worship something. Essentially, atheism is the declaration that you are God. You worship yourself. So it's all just misguided attempts at trying to earn God or achieve enlightenment or peace or wholeness. 
But the reality is you can't get to God. You definitely can't be God. No matter what you do, you can't get to God. No matter what you do, or, or, or how long you meditate, or how many children you feed, or how effective your social justice issues are, or how much, much, many degrees you have, or how successful your career is, you cannot get to God. God must come to you. And that's why the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. It's the news that God has indeed come to us in Jesus Christ, the Savior and King. And so the question is, what will you do with Jesus, the one called Christ? Will you crown him or crucify him? One thing you cannot do is dismiss him. He will not be ignored. And with our lives, we either crown him with our lives or crucify him with our lives. So our passage this morning is going to be John 18, verse 28, through chapter 19, verse 22. And I've broken this passage up into three different sections of three inherent questions that I believe this passage is confronting us all with. So these questions are going to act as sort of a roadmap for the rest of our time. And the first question is, will you come to grips with the truth? And the second question is, which Jesus do you want? And then the third question is, what will you do with Jesus, the man called Christ? These questions aren't just for unbelievers or, or, or even people that are, that are far from God. In fact, if you've been walking through this series with us, you're probably going to notice some themes here already that have characterized Christ's interactions throughout the Gospel of John um, in, in our series. So I, I want you to see this morning that these questions are helpful for all of us as we navigate and we grow closer and closer to Jesus um, in our relationship with him as we navigate this stuff together. So John 19, turn with me to John 19 verse 28. Let's dive in here. It says this, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning and they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. Now, a little context and a timeline here for you to, to understand what's happening here. Again, Jesus celebrated Passover um, with his disciples on Thursday night, okay? And then they, excuse me, then they went into the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, just to the east of the temple, to pray because Jesus knew what was coming. So that was Thursday night, they celebrate Passover, then they go into the garden, and he's praying, all right? And it's in that garden later that night and or early Friday morning that Jesus is betrayed by Judas Iscariot, and he's arrested. And he was taken before Annas and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who had become sort of like a corrupt religious uh, ruling elite that was almost like a high priestly crime family. That's not an exaggeration. And so Jesus was questioned and abused in a sort of like kangaroo court in the middle of the night. And then he's taken to the praetorium or the governor's headquarters. The, the, the Roman prefect is another way of calling uh, Pontius Pilate. Prefect or governor. And this all takes place early Friday morning. Okay? And so here we're introduced to Pontius Pilate. And it's important to understand who this man was. Like we don't know a ton about him, but here's what we do know. He was appointed uh, by the Roman emperor Tiberius, who was also apparently his father-in-law. And it all took place in the year 26 AD. So he would have arrived in Judea about four years before Jesus began his public ministry. And so he ruled as governor over the region for about 10 years. And most historical sources refer to him in pretty negative ways, actually. Like the ancient Jewish philosopher uh, called Philo of Alexandria, accused Pilate with corruptibility, violence, robberies, ill treatment of the people, grievances, continuous executions without even the form of a trial, endless and intolerable cruelties. That's how Pilate's described by the contemporary uh, historian or, or philosopher Philo. And of course, I want you to realize also that uh, this was the way that historians spoke of almost all Roman prefects of the time, which doesn't excuse it, but it shows how this is simply just kind of the Roman reputation, right? But Pilate definitely lived up to that reputation. 
Like he was extremely anti-Semitic. And often he towed the line of provoking the Jewish population to assert his authority to keep them in line. Right? But during his first year, he brought Roman standards embossed with images of the Roman emperor into Jerusalem, which the Jews viewed as blasphemous. And so they protested, like this was triggering to them. So they protested, and, and just before Pilate's soldiers slaughtered them all, the protesters bore their necks to the sword. That's pretty radical. And then that caused Pilate then to relent on slaughtering them, and he actually responds by removing all of those Roman standards, okay? However, don't be deceived into thinking that that was a merciful act. I don't think it was at all. In fact, I think it was simply an attempt to see how far he could push the Jews, and he had discovered the line, and he was willing to constantly walk right up to it and constantly step over it just to see how they would react and what they would do. In fact, everything the man did was cold and calculated and designed to retain or enforce Roman authority and power. Not too long after that event, he took money from the temple treasury and he used it to pay for the construction of an aqueduct, which apparently ran through a sacred Jewish graveyard. When the crowds of Jews then inevitably protested, Pilate ordered his soldiers to dress as civilians and infiltrate the protesting crowds. Suddenly, in mid-protest, the soldiers took clubs out from under their cloaks that they had hidden them under, and they beat multiples in the crowd to death. Luke 13, 1 even calls attention to an incident where Pilate put many to death while they were trying to offer sacrifices unto God, saying Pilate had, quote, mingled their blood with their sacrifice. In other words... Pilate wasn't exactly a benevolent ruler. His job was to keep Israel in check no matter what the cost. So insurrection was swift and it was brutal. Or it was brutally dealt with. Swiftly and brutally dealt with. In fact, Pilate's dwelling was normally in Caesarea or Caesarea. Um, However, he had moved to Jerusalem during large festivals, especially Passover, Uh, specifically to keep any hint of insurrection under control. And so now the Jews have brought Jesus, the man called Christ, or Messiah, to Pilate and charged Jesus with political insurrection. That's what's happening. Now this would have been a very curious scenario to this cold and calculated and extremely suspicious ruler. Like Pilate knew how to play this game well. It was like a chess game of authoritarian rule, and he was really good at it. Notice that he's so familiar with the Jewish ways that he knows that they won't enter his headquarters because they would be defiled for Passover since he was not Jewish. But he's not offended. He's almost stoic in his approach to him. He's learned how to play the game in order to hold the power, right? So look at verse 29. So Pilate went outside to them. And said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. So Pilate's already depicted here doing his best to avoid having to deal with Jesus, right? Like this seems to be kind of a running theme with all the leaders at this time, by the way. That's why Jesus is getting taken from one leader to another. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. The the Romans, a little context there, the Romans had revoked the Sanhedrin's right to issue capital punishment at this point. And yet Pilate has no interest in executing someone for a religious crime. So the religious leaders then accused Jesus of treason, saying he claimed to be a king in opposition to Caesar, or the Roman emperor. Verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So this is a reference to his many allusions to crucifixion. He talks about throughout his ministry that he's going to die. He taught, take up your cross and follow me kind of language, right? But that allusion is specifically pointing to crucifixion, which was a Roman execution tactic, not a Jewish one. It was a way of brutalizing, humiliating, and warning anyone who dared to stand against Rome that they would be treated the same way. It's how they dealt with 
insurrectionists. More on this at our Good Friday service, right? They would lift them high for all to see. Remember, the Jewish way would be to stone them down below them, below their feet, not lift them up. That's why the prophecies about the Messiah being raised and lifted high, pretty radical statements. Verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? So here's the first interaction. (laughs) I love this. Don't miss what's happening here. Remember that Jesus is willingly enduring all of this. And he's willingly going to the cross precisely for people like Pontius Pilate. Like, this is amazing. Don't just write Pilate off as the villain here. Like, remember, we're all enemies of God at one point. This is why Jesus is going to the cross. Like He's prompting Pilate to make up his own mind and make up his own confession about who he is. He is here presenting himself to Pilate as the Savior and King. Suddenly, also, the tables have flipped on Pilate, and he's the one being questioned. And the question is clear, and it's a question of truth which is the, the, the first question here. Will you come to grips with the truth? Look at verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. In other words, like, why are you asking me what I think about it? It doesn't matter. You see him trying to keep him at a distance. What, what have you done? What have you done? Right? That's what he does. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not have been delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. You see that? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, Pilate's literal job as prefect would have been to determine the truth about Jesus. And yet, he refuses to come to grips with it. Like, he's more interested in preserving power than truth. He simply wants to know if Jesus is a threat to Roman control. That's it. And yet, truth itself is embodied in the man standing before him and looking him right in the eyes. Like, I can't help but imagine Christ lovingly yet confrontationally looking Pilate right in the eyes and say, as he says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. As Pilate looks away, dismissively exclaiming, what is truth? Like, he doesn't even give Christ the chance to answer because he doesn't really want an answer. He immediately walks outside. Like, what is truth? What is truth anyway? That's, that's what's going on right here. He's not going, what is truth? Tell me more. It's not what's happening. Some say we shouldn't think of Pilate's question as an existential question about the meaning of truth. They say that a postmodern idea that, that would be, that, that would be a postmodern idea that wouldn't have been a part of Pilate's worldview at that time. But I think that that's just post, postmodern philosophers pretending Uh, that cynicism is somehow a new concept. Because I think that's exactly what's going on here. Especially since the cynicism attached to this question has dramatically shaped our entire world for the past 2,000 years. Right? I think it's clear that Pilate is in fact asking this question with a flippant and dismissive attitude that in so many ways describes all of society that positions itself against actual, absolute truth. Society doesn't even pretend, or, or, or society doesn't even pretend to present an alternative, alternative truth. Like, it simply illogically washes its hands of truth altogether. Have you noticed that? It doesn't take a scholar to see how the political agendas of this fallen world easily and consistently drift away from any real concern with truth. 
and drift towards the aggregation of power and control and self-serving agendas. Have you guys noticed this? I hope you have. And yet, Pilate turns away as though truth cannot be something that is really identified, even though it's staring him in the eyes. Pilate turns away. He places Jesus in the same category with all the other religious teachers and philosophers who simply ponder abstract ideas but never have any substantial truth. Jesus is the truth incarnate, and yet Pilate superficially dismisses him as a non-threat and returns to the crowd. This is what an encounter with Jesus provokes in us. It requires that we come to grips with truth, the truth, or dismiss him completely. These are our options. So will you come to grips with the truth? Not your own personal truth or somebody else's truth or some emotionally unstable Instagram celebrity's concept of embracing your own truth. Like that's probably the most hollow and fickle statement anyone could ever make, right? Like I hope you see that. Don't be blinded by this world that drifts away from and washes their hands of truth. And it's a blatant rejection of Christ's testimony in John 14 of being the way, the truth, and the life. Like, people are, of course, welcome to reject that. Like, I'm not angry about it. I'm not mad about the fact that people reject that. But you can't reject that and claim to be a Christian. Right? Like, this language of your truth, my truth, their truth, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ... There is one truth, and he's incarnate in Jesus Christ. So the question is, will you come to grips with the truth? What will you do with Jesus, the man called Christ? He himself is truth in the flesh. Back to verse 38. After he had said this, so he's, you know, what is, what is truth, you know? And then he, after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? See, this is, don't miss this. Like, this is tactical pilot in full effect, all right? Like, he sees the hard-heartedness of the religious rulers, and he makes his move right here. Okay, he presents Jesus to the crowd saying, I'm willing to free this man. And he refers to him with the title of King of the Jews. And he does this with all the authority of Rome behind him. That's not an arbitrary detail. Like, is he mocking him? Probably. And yet, I think he's also issuing here a calculated challenge to the religious leaders by officially using this title of king of the Jews. So he offers Jesus up to them, and he uses uh, the Passover tradition as a reason to do it, and he presents himself as being merciful, and even, I wonder, maybe Pilate slyly thinking he might get this new king on his side. But the crowd is having, like, nothing to do with it. crowd's Response here is verse 40. They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. And it says, now Barabbas was a robber. So here we have another character introduced, Barabbas, a man called Barabbas. And he's presented to us here as a robber, but in other gospels, he's also called a murderer. In fact, the Greek term for robber here can also be translated insurrectionists or insurrectionist. Some of your Bibles may actually use that term or have a footnote. I know the ESV has a footnote saying robber means insurrectionist because that's what this term means in the Greek. Barabbas was a political criminal, which means other gospel accounts even claim that he committed murder, as I've said, in his attempts at insurrection. So he may have even been a part of a group called the Zealots who would slip through the crowds with daggers hidden under their cloaks and they would stab Roman officials um, and, and, and sometimes Jewish traitors like tax collectors or corrupt rulers. And so Barabbas is often depicted, uh, we see him in like movies like the, the Passion. You remember when Barabbas is released, if you've seen this, and he, he's like this grimy criminal with like one eye and he's like, ah, you know, 
He's like, yeah, he looks like a, a Viking that's been set free or something. But to, like, he, he's like this grimy criminal. But I want you to see that to this crowd who's craving liberation from Roman oppression, he would have been regarded as a hero. See this. To them, Barabbas was willing to do what the, they originally wanted Jesus to do. Like the name Barabbas, catch this, even means son of the father. Historians also tell us that his full name was actually Jesus Barabbas. Jesus, son of the father. So the question we're presented here with is which Jesus, son of the father, do you want? Which Jesus do you want? The counterfeit version who will serve your agenda and do things your way? Or the true Jesus, son of the father? who takes away the sins of the world, exposes the lies, and provides a liberation that is more than you could have asked or ever thought or imagined. There's so much more going on here. Can you imagine, like, if you're there, there's so much more going on than any of them could have ever fathomed. It would have required a trust in God's word and a trust in Christ. See, the crowd's only interested in their own agendas, and so, of course, they opt for the counterfeit. One of the reasons people tend to dismiss the true Jesus is because they become infatuated with the counterfeit. And yet, even if you're realizing this morning that you've been crying out for false Savior, the answer isn't the wallow in the shame of that. You're who Jesus came for. But the answer is to turn away from the counterfeit saviors of this world and to trust in and believe in the true Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to take a second here to imagine being Barabbas. Whew, gosh, I love this. How am I going to get through this? I want you to imagine being in that prison cell awaiting your crucifixion. Like maybe he was in a cell alone or, or maybe he was in a cell with the other two who were to be uh, publicly crucified that day. Remember? Three crosses. Right? Maybe they'd heard about Jesus. Maybe Barabbas had even known about the tradition of releasing one of the prisoners, and maybe he was even praying that God would set him free. Maybe he even realized that he had taken it too far and was asking God to forgive him and show him mercy. I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. Like he could have also been a hard-hearted killer convinced that his actions were righteous. We don't know. Either way, the approaching footsteps of that soldier would have come with the expectation of death to Barabbas. Barabbas probably expected the soldier to say something like, it's time, Barabbas. Let's go. That's what he was awaiting. But instead, he heard something like, good news, Barabbas. Jesus, the one they call Christ, has taken your place on the cross, and you're free to go. Jesus, the one they call Christ, has taken your place on the cross and you are free to go. Good news, Barabbas. The best news. Now, we don't know what actually happened to Barabbas, but tradition has it that this former murderer and insurrectionist followed Jesus up the hill of Calvary and witnessed the entire crucifixion that was supposed to be his own. Tradition has it that he himself became a Christian as a result. And again, we don't know for sure, but one thing we do know for sure is that Jesus did, in fact, take his place on the cross, which is exactly what he's done for each one of us. Because this is the gospel, that God became a man, and he lived the life we couldn't live, and he died the death we deserved to die, and he conquered death in the grave through the resurrection, paving the way to God the Father for eternity, an eternal life that starts now. Not an eternal life that starts one day when you die, but an eternal life that starts the moment you place your hope and your faith in what Christ did for you at the cross and we're filled with His Spirit, and it transforms us from the inside out as we walk this thing out in grace and truth. Now, did Barabbas confess Jesus as Lord? Did he repent of his sins, and did he believe? Right? Because Jesus offers everyone forgiveness, but reconciliation can only come when the offending party repents. Do you see this? 
So Jesus does offer forgiveness to the entire world. But it can only be, the the relationship can only be restored if the offending party repents. So did Barabbas repent? I don't know. Did he repent, confess him as Lord, repent and believe? I, I, I don't know. Maybe he just dismissed the whole thing and went back to his old ways of trying to be his own savior and the savior of the world himself. I don't know. I hope he believed, but either way, he had to deal with Jesus. Just like Pilate, and just like me, and just like you, he was faced with the ultimate question, what will you do with Jesus, the man called Christ? Guys, we get so caught up in all the crazy details. People talking about dinosaurs and, and, and like creation and molecules and all this other stuff. What will you do with the man called Christ? What will you do with Jesus? That's what it's about. Don't get caught up in all that other stuff. That stuff is good. Look, hear me. I'm, I'm, in, I'm here for it. You got questions about that stuff? Let's go. Right? But first and foremost, Jesus Christ. What will you do with Jesus, the man called Christ? Which is our final question in our final section. What will you do with Jesus, the man called Christ? At this point, who knows what's going on in Pilate's mind. Like he may have been shocked at just how hostile this crowd actually was towards Jesus, which in turn may have caused him to want to wash his hands of the whole affair even more. Like it's clear that at least in Pilate's perspective, Barabbas was more of a threat to Rome than Jesus. And yet he's realizing just how hostile this crowd truly is. So what will he do with Jesus, the man called Christ? Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Which is a a, a mockery term that they would use because that's how they would greet Caesar. Hail, Caesar! You ever heard that? So they're, they're mocking him. Hail, King of the Jews! And struck him excuse me, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Now the the audacity here is disgusting. Do not overlook this. Commentator James Hamilton put it like this, and I think he he gets to the heart of it. He says, The one who shaped and formed the human hand is confronted with that miracle of engineering used against him as a weapon. Many believe Pilate presents him this way and, and flogged him and had him mocked in this way to sober the crowd up. Perhaps he thought that seeing this innocent man flogged like this and humiliated like this would have caused him to back down. Some even think Pilate was doing this to try to save Christ's life, as if to say, hasn't he suffered enough? To appeal even maybe to their humanity. Maybe that's the case. Maybe he's just a cold-blooded killer. I don't know. I do think that there was a sense in which he's trying to sober the crowd up, though. But it seems that even the ruthless Pilate has underestimated the cold-blooded nature of this mob. Verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. In some ways, this man even, uh, this might even be a a sarcastic threat from Pilate. Like, since he he does know that if they do that, he'll be able to come after them since it's illegal for them to enforce capital punishment. Right? Verse 7. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, why did that statement suddenly make Pilate even more afraid? Think about this. You need to understand that Pilate was a first century Roman who would have heard this title, son of God, with some serious impact. Like his religious worldview would have been filled with stories of the sons of God walking among men. Right? Think Hercules. Think Achilles. This is, this is the worldview of that time. 
for the Romans especially. And on top of all that, Matthew 27, 19 tells us that just before this moment, Pilate's wife, whom we now know as Claudia Procula, sent word to him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. It's Pilate's wife. She's been given a dream. She's, she's, she's even this, this pagan Roman woman is realizing something significant is going on. And so now both Pilate and his wife now suspect that not only is Jesus innocent, but he may also be divine. The stakes suddenly just got a lot higher, and Pilate is afraid of this man who may very well be a son of the gods. Verse 9, he entered his headquarters again. So he's gone out, he's gone in, he's like trying to deal with this, back to the crowd, like seriously, then back to Jesus, right? This is what's happening. So he enters his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? That title just shook him. Like I want you to get the right image in your head here though. Remember, Jesus has just been beaten and flogged, and he would have been standing before Pilate in that purple robe with a crown of three-inch long thorns jammed into his skull. His face would have been bloody and distorted, and here a fearful Pilate returns asking him where he's from. Pilate clearly suspects that not only is Jesus a king, but that he is a divine king and a son of God. Of course, to him, that probably meant, again, something more like Achilles or Hercules, but still Pilate's shaken up here. But Jesus, it says, gave him no answer, which would have been even more like, oof. Isaiah 53, 7 is what we're seeing here in full effect. Again, Old Testament prophecy, which said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This would have been one of those unpleasant prophecies that the crowd conveniently over overlooked. Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? So he tries to bully him. Like, this is Pilate's go-to move when he's stressed out and all else fails. Verse 11, Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That would have shook him again, right? Verse 12, From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar, or the Roman emperor. So they appeal to Pilate's desire for power and control. See that? There are powers and principalities at work here. Even though he realizes that what is taking place is wrong, his idolatry of power is greater than his desire for truth and righteousness. And his fear of man is greater than his fear of God. So when, verse 13, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. So he sits down in the official sentencing capacity. Verse 14, now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, which means that they were coming up on the time when millions of Passover lambs would be sacrificed in the temple uh, in preparation for Passover. Do you see the context of what's going on here? Millions of lambs, at least hundreds of thousands of lambs, were being slaughtered. Were about, they were being prepared for the slaughter in the temple because all of those lambs were a picture of the fulfillment of the true Lamb of God in Jesus Christ who is here being prepared. This is a clear connection with the fact that Jesus is the, being presented here as, quote, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which is how John the Baptist presented John back in, uh, or sorry, this is how John the Baptist presented Jesus back in John chapter 1. So back to verse 14 here. He said to the Jews, 
Again, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And that's how I think he said it. Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Take that in. We have no king but Caesar. This is a clear rejection of multiple Old Testament passages in which God himself declares he is alone Israel's ultimate king. And they also here deny all of their expectations of a coming Messiah or a Christ based on the promises of Scripture. This isn't just a rejection that Jesus is the Messiah. That's bad enough. This is an outright and total rejection of any Messiah at all by the official chief priests of Israel. In essence, the chief priests of Israel officially and fundamentally reject the Lord, Yahweh, and all his promises completely right here in verse 15. I'm not saying this as a condemnation over them. I'm saying this because I want you to see how heartbreaking this would have been for Jesus. Can you imagine the king of eternity hearing his chosen people say, we have no king but Caesar. Matthew 27 verse 24 and 26, also adds here that when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged, which, by the way, scourging is worse than flogging, and it's only used in capital punishment scenarios because scourging in itself was so brutal, many died from it. So having scourged Jesus, so he's, he's been flogged and now he's been scourged. So having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now I want you to see that though Pilate attempted to wash his hands of the whole ordeal, he also delivered him to be crucified at the same time. Not long before this, Remember, he's bragging about how he had the authority to set Jesus free, and yet here he is delivering him to be crucified and trying to wash his hands of it as, as if he doesn't have any authority or stake or responsibility in it at all. He can't have it both ways. But the truth is that his hands remain stained by the blood of Christ until his faith is placed in Christ, which is the case for us all. Verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified, so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And the title is lifted high for all to see. Charles Spurgeon captured what's going on here perfectly. He said it like this. He said, It was God's purpose that his son should not die on the cross without a public proclamation of his innocence and an official recognition that he was what he had said he was, namely, the king of the Jews. Who was, who, who was to put up such a notice over his head as he hung there? Peter might have been bold enough to attempt to do it, but he would certainly not have succeeded, for the Roman legionnaires jealously, jealously guarded every place of execution. Even John, daring as he might have been in such a crisis, could not have achieved the task. It was best that it should be done by authority, done by the Roman governor, done with an official pen and so secured that no envious chief priest dared to pluck it down and no hand of a scoffer could be lifted up to blot out its testimony. It was privileged writing because it was written with the pen of a Roman official and there it must stay under the authority of the Roman law as long as the body of Jesus hung on the cross 
see what God can do. Pilate knew there was way more going on here. And yet still, his hard heart prevailed. His fear of man and the crowds and his desire for power, control, comfort, human affirmation prevailed over what he even sensed or maybe even knew to be true. But he wouldn't come to grips with that truth. But that doesn't have to be your story. In fact, it may not even have been Pilate's ultimate story. We don't know, but there are actually multiple ancient Christian legends that do say that both Pilate and his wife, Claudia Procula, eventually became Christians as a result of this experience. Now, there are more legends that say Claudia Procula became a Christian and that Pilate did not. However, the point here is I do hope that they are true. And why wouldn't they be? Like, why wouldn't they be? Like, these are, they are, we are precisely the type of people Jesus endured the cross for. You see, outside of faith in Christ, his blood remains on us all. We're all the villains of this story, and yet we are also the very ones he came to save. Like, this is not a story of condemnation. This is the story of the one who came to die for sinners and set them free. This is the truest of all love stories. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the question this morning is again, what will you do with Jesus, the man called Christ? If you've not placed your faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, then you need to see that you're positioned against him as his enemy this morning. And yet I also want you to see how he treats his enemies. This is the God who loves his enemies and died for them. Now don't take that sacrifice for granted. Don't wash your hands of him. You cannot dismiss him. You can only crown him or crucify him. To dismiss him is to crucify him. And the time is coming when justice will prevail. At his return, justice will prevail. And a good God does uphold true justice. And vengeance truly is his. Amen? And to crown him is to receive him as Lord, as Savior, as he is. And so to those, though, who have received him as Lord and Savior, I want you to see how he patiently and mercifully is like if he's this way to his enemies guys how do you think he is towards his children like how much more gracious and steadfast is he but may we never take that for granted may we never dismiss that reality but instead continually confess him as Lord and Savior and behold him and crown him with righteousness with our lives. Not turning away, not dismissing him. This is what it looks like to follow him as Lord and Savior and King. Not because we're necessarily like wallowing in shame and it's like, oh, I did it again, but to turn from that and behold him and say, thank you. Thank you. And rejoice in the freedom, for freedom you have been set free. This is what we celebrate. In fact, this uh, Sunday after Easter, April 24th, say April 24th, we're going to be celebrating baptism. Woo! And so uh, what we do is uh, that the point here is that Jesus is both Savior and King, Right? He's not just Savior, and he's not just King. If he's not one, you don't get the other. You don't get him Savior if he's not also Lord, right? And so, uh, during baptism, we ask two questions. The first question is, do you believe that Jesus has done everything necessary to save you? And then the second question we ask, so that's that's a Savior aspect, right? And then the second question we ask is Lordship, Right? Will you go where he asks you to go and do what he asks you to do? And then we baptize 
We immerse them in the love of God and the grace of God in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, engulfing them, embracing them into the body of Christ. That's what it pictures. And so if, you're not, if you've not been baptized as a believer in Christ, then I want to invite you to come and talk with me sometime in the next couple of weeks. I'd love to walk through this, and um, I'd, I'd love to dunk you if that's what the Lord's calling you to. Um, but either way, we cannot dismiss Jesus. We've got to deal with him. And by have to, I mean we get to. What an opportunity. Let's behold the Savior and King. Let's pray.